you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Galatians chapter number 4. And let me start off by saying, I'm so sorry that we're starting a little bit later. Uh, in our first service, we had one of our missionaries from Venezuela who was with us and um, sharing a little bit about what God is doing over there. And we went a little bit long on the service, so uh, that's why we're starting late. Uh, but I'm going to try to get out uh, the same time we always get out. We'll just try to cut the message a little bit shorter. Uh, that's why we only sang three songs so far instead of the normal four. And uh, for those that might be um, watching through the live stream, um, that's why we're starting late, all right? Uh, especially Fernando. Fernando's always, almost every week, uh, streaming. Uh, he's, uh, he lives in Seattle, Washington. And, uh, and I really appreciate Fernando tuning in every week. But Fernando, if you're watching, that's why we're starting a little bit late. But we're so thankful for each one that uh, has made it. And, uh, and hopefully this will be a time in which we get to grow in our um, knowledge and what uh, the Bible teaches. Galatians chapter number four, we've been studying this, this book of Galatians. It's actually a letter that was written uh, from the Apostle Paul to the Christians at Galatia. And we've been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as Paul is expanding on the message of the gospel. He wants them to understand what the gospel message is, what it means, and really what it does for us. And that's what we've been learning about it. And when you get to chapter number four, uh, the first seven verses, he, he's finishing a thought from chapter three, which is, what the gospel does for us, it makes us heirs of God. And, and we, we studied that the word heirs there means a grown child, someone that was ready to receive an inheritance. And so Paul is giving the idea to the Christians in Galatia, you're not like new Christians. You're not, you're not people that know very little about the Bible. And, and I'm just hearing God, the gospel message for the first time. I'm, I'm hearing about this guy named Jesus that died on a cross for my sin it wasn't something that was supposed to be new to them, but they've already been in the faith. And once you receive the faith of Christ, he's, he's made you someone that inherits uh, the realities that come with that, uh, the position that comes with that of being a child of God. And, uh, and so he's, he's talking about that at the beginning of chapter four, kind of tying in what he, what he ended chapter three with. Then you see him give a, a passionate plea that's what we titled it, a passionate plea uh, to the Galatians to not go into a life, into a Christian life that is all about rules and regulations. It's not religion. Uh, he says, don't come to church just because you think, well, if I do that, then God's going to do something good for me. And if I don't, then I might get struck by lightning next time it rains. That's, that's not what, what it's about. Religion teaches us to do that. Religion says, if you do really good, then God loves you. And if you do really bad, then watch out, something bad is going to happen to you. That's religion. Religion teaches us, well, you're not so bad after all. Because if you can do these things, that makes you a good person. And I've heard a lot of people say this, people that go to church and people that don't go to church. One of the ways that, that, that people that want to prove how good they are, they'll say this. Uh, there's a, a, a football coach, uh, ex-NFL football coach for the Las Vegas Raiders uh, that got fired last year. His name was John Gruden. And just this past week, he was in Tennessee and uh, doing uh, some sort of, I don't know, meeting there. And, and the media was there. And, and he was talking about the incident that happened. And if you don't know about the incident, 
they discovered some emails where he was using derogatory terms in his email uh, against African Americans, uh, had the N-word and other words that were very derogatory. So they fired him. And so now he's there in Tennessee uh, just this past week, and he's saying, hey, I'm not a bad guy. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a good guy. I, I did a mistake, and I know it. I recognize it. But, you know, hey, I'm a good guy. I've been married for, for many years to my wife. I've been faithful, and, and I go to church. I'm a good guy. I go to church. And usually when we want to prove that we're good at something or, or being something, then we, we want to talk about all of the good things that we do. I'm not a bad guy. I pay my taxes. I'm not a bad guy. I... I, I I let the, the, the people that, you know, get to a stop sign a little bit after me, I let them go first sometimes. Like, I'm a good person. Religion teaches us to focus on our good works. And Paul says, you know, there's nothing good about us. The gospel, the message of the Bible is there's nothing good about us, but we can be made good by what Christ did for us. See, I'm not a good person because I'm here at church this morning. What makes me a good person is what Christ made me to be. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus, he turns you from a sinner to a saint because of what he did on the cross. His work makes us good people. His work makes us holy. So we got to think about that and remember that. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, just remember this. The gospel, the reason you're a good person is the gospel, not you. So he makes a passionate plea. Don't, don't walk in and don't live your life like a religious person because you'll be frustrated and it's, it doesn't end well. Then in verse number 19, we learned this last week, a pursuit, a Christ-like pursuit. The gospel makes you to live a life with a different kind of purpose. And, and pursuing something great in your life, and that is to be Christ-like. This morning, in these last 10 verses, we find an illustrated picture that Paul is going to paint. See, the gospel is transformative. It changes our purposes, our pursuits, but it also changes our practice. It changes who we are, it changes where we're going, but it also changes what we do. And so the Apostle Paul begins to paint a picture for the church at Galatia to say, this is, I want you to picture what the gospel does. Now, I love pictures, okay? They say a picture is worth a thousand words, and it really is. I could sit here, for instance, and, and talk about a beautiful white castle uh, that is in uh, Europe that, that extends above the trees, that has peaks that are just gorgeous, and I can, I can describe it to you and the color it's painted, but if I just put a picture, it does more than what I can describe. I can tell you the building that leans four degrees one way, 183 feet on one side, 185 feet on the other, and I can tell you that it's in Italy, uh, but I can tell you what it looks like, or I can just show you a picture. And it seems like the picture just does that much more. I can tell you, you know, the earth is pretty insignificant. It's actually pretty small. Uh, when you look at the great big picture of our universe, really, the, the earth is something that is really just so insignificant, or I can show you a picture of it. In fact, you can't hardly even see the earth in this picture. This is known as the pale blue dot. Voyager, which was one of the first NASA ships to go out into our solar system to take pictures of things, turned around, they sent a command and say, turn around and take a picture right before. This was at 3.7 billion miles away 
from earth. And I know it's really hard with, with our screens here, but right there, there's, a, there's like a little ray of light. And if you can see a white little dot right in the ray of light, that's the earth from 3.7 billion miles away. When the photograph finally came in, NASA said it's just like a pale blue dot in the expanse of our solar system. I mean, I can talk to you about what the earth really looks like, but it's so much different when you see the picture of it. Paul wants to give us a picture of the gospel. He wants to give us a picture of what it does when we follow it and what happens when we don't. He's trying to show the difference to these Christians in Galatia from a life of religion to a life of grace, a life of faith. And there's a big difference from having a life of religion and a life of faith. So let's look at that picture. Look at verse number 21, Galatians chapter 4. It says, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which generateth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath had husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. What picture is Paul painting in all of this? Well, I'm going to give you three observations of what this picture looks like so that we can be really clear as to what the gospel should lead us to practice in our life. I want you to notice, first of all, if you have your notes, the story itself. The story itself. Now, if you want to know who Agar is, who Sarah is, and what Paul is talking about here, you have to have some background information. All right, The people that he's writing to in Galatia, uh, they would have known this story. But you might be here this morning and say, I, I don't even know who these people are. So let's talk really quick and give you a quick background of what is being talked about here by Paul. Number one, he's introducing... Um, two people by the name of Abraham and Sarah. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is called by God to leave his home from Ur of the Chaldees to go to a promised land. Abraham is 75 years old when God calls him. So you can just imagine, 75 years of age, and suddenly God says, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave the city that you were born and raised in. I want you to leave all of your friends. And I want you to go a land that I'm going to show you. He didn't even say where he was going to stop. He said, just start leaving and I'll show you. I'll take you there. You're just going to have to follow me until I take you to this new promised land. Well, Abraham believes God and he, and he heads out. While he's heading on this journey, 
God tells him at the age of 75, I want you to know that I will be giving you a son. You're going to be the father of many nations. And you can see in the picture, there's kind of like stars in the background. He says, you're gener- you're, you're, uh, uh, the, the generations after you, the nations, your children, are going to be as many as stars are in heaven on a dark night. <laughs> Just that big. That how, that's how big your, uh, the generations that come after you are going to be. Now, all of that makes sense if he has a big family. The problem is Abraham and Sarah have no children. He's 75 years old. She's 10 years younger. She's 65 years old. No children yet. God says, just believe me, go. I'll take you to a land and I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Abraham believes him. Goes on this journey. 10 years later, Abraham now is 85 years old. Sarah is 75 years old and still no children. So what is... uh, what does Sarah do? She starts to lose hope. She starts to look at herself and say, look it, I, I'm not able to have children anymore. I'm 65 years old. Now, people aged back then the way they age now, okay? The, the oldest lady that we've had in this church to have a baby, I remember, was, uh, was a sister, a dear old sister, that was 55 years old. Her daughter was about, uh, I think, two, three years younger uh, than me. So they had none of this family. And uh, in fact, she, she just, uh, the mom just passed away this past year in, in 2021 uh, from COVID at the age of 87 years old. And her daughter's my age. And I remember hearing about that and thinking, that's, that's pretty late in life to have, to have a baby, 55. 65, that's crazy. 75, that's unheard of. And here is God telling Abraham, I promise you, you're going to have an heir. I'm going to give you a child. Sarah's 75. She's starting to lose hope. Abraham's 85. He's starting to think, eh, I don't know. So what was the custom back in those days when someone couldn't have children, when there was a wealthy family and it was a husband and a wife and the wife couldn't have children? Well, back then they still had the system of slavery. And what they would do is that the wife could choose one of the slaves and the slave could go and marry her husband and give her a child, and then she would raise that child as if it was hers. And that child would become the heir of that man. And he would, he would take on his name, his last name, and that would be his legacy. And that's why, even though it was not her child physically, the, the wife in that home, because it's the slave's uh, child, she would adopt it, and it would become that. So what does Sarah do? She thinks, well, I'm 75, not going to have any children looks at her uh, slave, which in the scriptures here is called bondwoman. Her name's Hagar, and she says, you know what, Hagar? I need you to bear a son for me. I'm going to take you to my husband. I'm married to my husband, and he, you're going to have a, his child, and I'm going to adopt that child, and that'll be mine, and that'll be the heir that will take over. He will get the inheritance, and he will continue our family name. So what do they do? Sure enough, one year later, Abraham is 86 years old and God grants a child to Hagar with Abraham. The name of the child is Ishmael. Here's the problem. That was not the son that God had promised. That was a son that came about from a lack of faith. 
It was a son that came about because they said, well, there's no other way. I'm going to use Hagar. Hagar, you do this, and you become the, the vehicle that's used to bring a child for our family. And as he starts to grow up, Ishmael starts to realize, and God begins to tell Abraham, this is not the child that I promised you. In fact, this is not a good thing that happened. But he says, I'm still going to bless Ishmael. I'm still going to be with Ishmael, but this is not the one I, I promised that I was going to give you. He said, the promise was that Sarah was going to give you a child. This is Hagar's child. This is, this is not from me. So when Ishmael actually turns 13 years of age, God fulfills his promise. And Sarah, at the age of 90 years old, has the baby of promise. They name him Isaac. Isaac literally means laughter. That's if, if you're wondering, if your name's Isaac, the, name, the, the meaning of your name means laughter, joyful. So this is the baby that they've been waiting for. God told Abraham when he was 75 years of age, I'm going to give you an heir. When he's 100, it finally comes. By the way, there's a lesson, the message is not on that, but there's a lesson in, in just being patient in God's promises there. 25 years he had to wait for this to happen. But it was miraculous. Sarah, at 90 years of age, has the baby. And now Isaac is born. Isaac, of course, is the true heir. He is the one that's going to receive all that Abraham has. And now that Isaac is turning two years of age, they're celebrating him. And at that celebration, at that party, Ishmael begins to be very cruel to Isaac. So cruel. He's about 15 or 16. He's making fun of him. He's being mean to him. It's to the point where Sarah goes to Abraham and says, you have to ask Ishmael to leave the house. This is, he's crazy. He's wild. The Bible says he was a wild man. In other words, he's a teenager that nobody could control. Not even his mother could control him. And so Abraham has to kick Hagar and Ishmael out of the house. And Isaac remains as that heir to Abraham. He is the child of promise. The child that came about by faith. That's the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. So now Paul is using that story in verse 21 all the way down to verse 31 in Galatians 4. Why? What is he trying to teach us? What is it that we're supposed to know? Well, he uses this as an allegory to represent Hagar being the law, because we've been learning about the law, and Sarah representing faith. And what that means to us as Christians. How does that connect to the gospel? Let's, let's, do, let, let's go through that real quick this morning. Number one, Hagar, the bondwoman there in your notes. Hagar, as I said, was Sarah's slave. She was her personal handmaiden. She would do whatever Sarah was asking. And there she is doing what Sarah asked and having a, a child with Abraham. But... It was a child born out of the flesh, not out of faith. It was a lack of faith that took her to do that. It was a lack of faith that, that, that drove her to make that decision. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 7 and 8, we find that, uh, that God had told Abraham, that's, that's not what I'm promising you. I promise you an heir by faith. You're never going to receive God's promises 
by doing good works yourself, by trusting in your own good works, by trusting in what we would call the flesh. That means trusting in yourself. I know we live in a world today that says, oh, just follow your heart. The Bible says your heart's deceitful. Don't trust your heart. The decision that Abraham made was following his heart. Saying, okay, it's the only way I can see it happening. But you see, faith is believing what I cannot see. Faith is believing what God has promised, what God has said. A lack of faith drove Abraham to go with Hagar. Drove him to Hagar, who is a picture of the law. Good works. The Ten Commandments. Religion itself. She's a picture of that. Then you have Sarah, the free woman. Sarah was Abraham's wife. She wasn't a slave. She was a free woman. By the way, when a child was born, as in Hagar's case, when she was a slave, that child was a slave. Even though he was the owner's son, he was still positionally just a slave. When the child of the wife was born, that child was a true heir. Um, if you want to think of it this way, if Abraham was a king, the next one that was going to go to the throne would have been Isaac because he was born of his wife that wasn't a slave. And because Hagar was a slave, then Ishmael couldn't go to the throne. So here's Sarah, free woman, by faith, God does a miraculous work in her and Isaac is born when she's 90 years of age. Abraham is 100. Now you read that story in Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 17. And notice what he says in Genesis chapter 17. Verse 20, I put in your notes. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. That is Ishmael. Twelve princesses shall he beget and I will make him a great nation. By the way, if you want to know who are the descendants of Ishmael, it's the Arab nations. Those that are of Saudi Arabia, those that are of Iran and Iraq, those are all sons of Ishmael. And if you know anything about their finances and oil, they're doing really well. They're really well off. Okay. So God fulfilled that promise, but he said, Ishmael is not the son I promised you. He's not of faith. And then he says, but my covenant... Will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. So you find that Isaac was the story of promise. Now, or the child of promise. Now look at the story's implications quickly. The story's implications. That's the story itself. Hagar, Sarah. One represents the law. The other one represents faith. One represents religion, one represents faith, one represents our good works, the other one represents the grace of God. So what are the implications? Number one, there in your notes, Ishmael was born of Abraham's doing. Because of that, through the law, Ishmael was born. Through Abraham's own effort, his logic, his reasoning, the birth of Ishmael required no faith, just creative thinking. And the reason was he didn't believe there was another way that could happen. He was too old. Sarah was too old. And to be honest with you, this reminds us sometimes of how we live our lives. We can make decisions in our flesh thinking that we're doing God's will and living for him when in reality, 
It's just a lack of faith of what God is doing and what God has said. Religion seems like faith, sounds like faith. It kind of almost looks very close to faith, but it's not faith. A life of faith and a life of religion has a lot of similarities. They're both going to go to church. They're both going to read their Bible. Uh, They're both going to call themselves Christians. The difference is in what they're trusting. The religious person is trusting, I got to be good enough for God to accept me. So all my good works is so that God will praise me and say, you did good. Good job. You're a good person. The person of faith realizes it's the grace of God that makes me good. And so what I do, any good work that we would call a good work that I do is by God's grace and God's grace alone. The person of faith says, I'm not a good person. My thoughts are evil. A lot of my actions are evil. The way I behave sometimes is evil. But the goodness that I have is by the grace of God. He's made me good. He's forgiving me. He's made me his child and heir of God. That's the difference between the religious person and the person of faith. The religious person is relying on his works for God to forgive him, for God to have favor in his life. The person of faith is relying on the grace of God. In fact, it's illustrated in the New Testament by Jesus himself saying, hey, there was a Pharisee, a religious guy that was praying, God, thank you that I'm so good and not bad like that publican. And the publican's prayer, this man who wasn't perfect by any means, that had God's grace in his life, this is how he prayed. He prayed with his head down. And he said, God, be merciful unto me. That's the difference between religion and faith between good works and grace. So we see Israel was of Abraham's doing. Isaac was born of God's doing. It should not have been possible whatsoever for Isaac to be born. A 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. But God made it happen. That was of God's doing. That was because they believed that God would do what he said he would do. Listen, I can just imagine. Can can you imagine as a couple talking what they're talking about? Abraham and Sarah. Like, hey, Sarah, I'm 75. God said this. You're 65. Let's just believe them. They leave their land. They leave their friends. They leave everything they know. Ten years later, still nothing. Twenty years later, still nothing. Twenty-four years later, nothing. So God himself comes by and says, by this time next year, you're going to have your baby. (laughs) Sarah literally starts laughing. I don't blame her. She's 89. I'd be laughing too. But God says, if you believe me, just by faith, I'm telling you, I'm going to make it happen. And a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman conceive and have a child and name him Isaac. It was God's doing. It was just a miracle that God did. What's the story's application then? What is Paul trying to apply to them, right? Knowing that background, 
knowing what verse 23 says, hey, Hagar was after the flesh, Sarah was after the promise. These are allegories. He's saying they're trying to tell you, go back and live a religious life. Paul is saying, that's Mount Sinai. By the way, Mount Sinai is where God actually gave Moses the Ten Commandments. That's why he's saying that. He said, that's where Jerusalem is right now. All the Judaizers, those teachers, they're telling you, follow the law, be religious, be religious. He said, understand that that's only going to lead you into bondage, frustration in your life, and you're never going to be able to do it. I, I don't know uh, about you if you've had this or not. You ever ran into somebody that their attitude is always, I can't? Right? Like, oh, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to do this. Oh, I, I can't do it. I'm just no good. I'm, I, I'm just, I, I, I can't. I'm no good at sports. I'm no good at music. I'm no good. And they're just everything, everything they're no good at. We would say that's somebody that lacks a lot of self-confidence. They just, they're always down on themselves, right? They're, they're, if you ever talk with someone like that, it's really hard sometimes to get to, to convince them, to, to make them understand, listen, you're a lot more than you think you are, right? And here, Paul is trying to paint this picture. Look, you go into the religious life, that's going to be you the rest of your life. Oh, I'm not good enough. I got to do this, I got to do this. And you know what? Something's going to happen in the week and you're going to mess up. And then you're going to be like, oh, God's mad at me. God is mad at me. He hates me. And then you think, well, maybe, maybe if I pray five times, that'll erase the one I missed, and I'll make up for it, and now God will be happy with me. Yeah, I missed the last three Sundays, but if I go the next four Sundays, that makes up for it, right, God? How frustrating of a life is that? It's frustrating. And Paul says, don't go. That's, that's, a, that's a life of bondage, of slavery. Don't go that way. A life of faith is very different. A life of faith focuses on the promises of God and the work of God. And you're going to live with the peace of God in you. He said that which is above in verse 20, 25 or 26. Uh, Jerusalem, which is above, is represented in Sarah. Listen, heaven is so much sweeter because that's the kind of heaven it is. <laughs> you live with a God that loves you no matter what you do. Because that's the reality. God loves you no matter what you do. Stories application, real quick. Let's conclude with this two quick applications. Number one, when you look at verse 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, what is Paul saying? Number one, religion leads to enslavement. Religion leads us to enslavement. No matter how good we think we can do, if it's not a faith, it means nothing. The life of just doing the Ten Commandments and living by religion will not help you. And here's what happens. You're going to start it, and it's very appealing to us. Religion is very appealing to us. And let me tell you why it's really appealing to everybody. Because it makes you think you're better than you are. Listen, it's nice to be complimented, right? I remember uh, when I used to use a lot more ties, I, I remember I'd, I'd go home some Sundays and, and I'd tell Rochelle, like, hey, three people said they really like my tie. It's nice to have compliments. You, you, you like to have those things. You like to have those good things said about you. But what you're wearing or what you did, or compliments are nice. You know, when you get into the life of religion, it really sounds nice. People say nice things like, wow, that's a really good person. You know, they're really spiritual. Wow, they, they're really, they walk really close to God. And the religious person feeds off that. They love that. 
So it's very attractive. Because it puts us as the center. Makes us feel really good. Makes us feel good about ourselves. Religion does that. Religion will work in our lives practically. Like you'll, you'll leave, you know, a, a service at Bethany Baptist Church and you'll go, did you see what they were wearing over there? <laughs> did you see what they did? That's what religion will do. That's why it's appealing. We like to talk about ourselves. We like to put ourselves up and religion does that for us. But faith doesn't. Faith puts Christ at the center. Faith says, listen, I'm nobody, but he's somebody. Faith focuses on what Christ did and says, you know, you know, uh, Christ forgave people that talk bad about him. I should forgive people that talk bad about me. Faith focuses on what Christ would do. There's a, remember that, that saying not too long ago? Maybe it was like the late 90s, early 2000s. What would Jesus do? Faith asks itself that. What would Jesus do here? What would he think? What would he say? So different. Christ is a center in that. That's why the life of religion just, it just leaves you unfulfilled. And we got to be careful with that. The second application is faith leads to enrichment. In contrast, faith is all about God's work, God's power. It doesn't glory in itself, but it glories in God above. A life of faith experiences true freedom from sin and the effects of sin. It leaves us depending more and more on God, seeing what God can do, what God can do in, in us, what God can do through us. It just, it just looks for God in everything. And Paul is telling them, these Christians, in, in verse 29, he says, so those that are born after the flesh, they persecuted. The flesh hates the life of faith. So by the way, when you start living by faith, don't be surprised when people start criticizing you. Oh, he thinks he's all holy. It's okay. Religious people are always comparing themselves with others, by the way. So if you get that from somebody, just know, aha, that must be a religious person there. The religious people always, like Paul said, comparing themselves among themselves, they're foolish. They're not wise. Religion does that, though. Religion hates. And just like Ishmael was making fun and mocking Isaac, and finally Sarah said, Abraham, you've got to do something. They can't, they, they, they can't live together. They can't grow up together. They can't walk together. Ishmael is one thing. Isaac's another. You've got to cast out. Ishmael, the same thing. You know what? A life of religion doesn't go with a life of faith. Either today you're living a life of faith or you're living a life of religion. But you can't reconcile them. You can't make them the same. You can't say, well, I have a little bit of religion in my life, a little bit of faith in my life, and, and we'll, we'll make it work. It doesn't work. They're, they're opposites, complete opposites. The application is get that life of flesh, that life of religion, get it out of your life. Be sold out to faith. And in verse number 30, Paul says, just I want to remind you that the people that have accepted the gospel message live by faith and not by the law. 
Now, if you continue to come, we're going to talk about chapter 5 and chapter 6. How do you live that life of faith then? What does that life of faith even look like? What is that all about? Chapter 5 and chapter 6 are all about that. So just keep coming. We'll learn about that. But just to take home with us today this application, right? Don't live a religious life. Live a life of faith. Remember the picture of Hagar and Sarah. One did it of their own works and their own scheming and their own power. The other one did it by faith and believing what God had said. Live that life. This week, live a life of faith. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for your many blessings and thank you for your truth. How easy it is for us as people that come to church almost every week. How easy it is to allow ourselves to become religious and live religiously and not by faith. How easy it is to compare others with ourselves. How easy it is to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Forgive us for that. Father, if that's been our attitude, if that's how we've been living these last four weeks or the last six months of this year, forgive us for that. Help us not to continue living in religion. Help us to realize that we've been made free. Free from all of that. We don't have to live a life after these rules and regulations. There's a life that's so much greater. A life of faith where we experience you in a way that we've never have before. In a way that's always changing and always growing. And it's always new and exciting. It's always at peace and it's always joyful. Oh, Father, that's the life we want to live. And so today, Father, as, as we meditate upon this story and how it applies to the gospel, I pray that those of us that have accepted Christ as our Savior, Father, we would continue now living a life of faith. Just like we receive salvation by faith, help us to live by faith. And help us to reject religion in our life. Help us to not be religious. Help us to walk with you. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.